0: Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership.
1: Welcome back to The Data Chief, everyone. This week, I am pleased to have my colleague, Sunny Rivera, a longtime industry veteran and a growing global thought leader, host The Data Chief podcast. Now, you first met Sonny on the Data Chief back in our annual trends episode as he works with analytics engineers on boosting their data modeling skills and of course, all leaders on controlling cloud costs. Gartner estimates that over 95% of new digital workloads will be deployed on cloud native platforms by 2025. That is up from a meager 30% just a few years ago in 2021. This rise of cloud is great for agility and faster time to market. But if you're not careful, it can also blow your tech budgets. This is a problem that Sunny has been tackling and focusing for at least a decade now when cloud first became a thing in the data space. So today you will hear from Sunny along with Raja Musanero, the Chief Product Officer of Financial Tech Leader, Tiffin. Together, Raja and Sunny will cover how to control your cloud costs and what cloud-first companies can learn from on-premises approaches. Stay tuned throughout this season of The Data Chief for more episodes from Sunny as he dives into all the technical and creative things in our space. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Welcome,
0: Raja. Thank you for joining us on uh, the Data Chief today.
2: Yeah, very happy to be here. Sunny, long time.
0: Yeah, it's it's been a while. So where are you joining us from today?
2: I'm right here, joining from the sunny and beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: And so you're maybe 20, 20 minutes from me because I'm I'm in South Charlotte as well. And the thing that's crazy about that is, I mean, I know we're both here in Charlotte and we're involved in the technology community, but I haven't had an opportunity to see you in real life in probably two years. So i'll I'll own that, and I will make sure that we get a chance to uh, sit down together and break bread sometime soon. yeah, I look forward to that so why don't you take a moment and tell us about Tiffin and tell us about your role there?
2: Yeah, so Tiffin is a Fintech focused on essentially expanding access to financial wellness um, to everybody. We believe that financial freedom can only come from investing and Our mission is to make investing essentially a more powerful driver of financial well being for everybody. Every individual we think is unique, and AI based personalization can match investors to the right kind of financial advice and investments necessary to meet whatever their wealth goals might be. And we essentially want to take AI and And change the world of wealth in ways that personalized uh, delivery essentially has done that in other industries, such as movies, music, um, and others. And I uh, lead the product for one of our divisions that is focused on the wealth intermediaries, right, from individual financial advisors to all the way up to large wealth management firms.
0: Really interesting. And so... Tiffin is the name of the company. Am I saying that right? Yes. What does that mean? I think you told me one time before, it's kind of slipped my mind, but I had a note in my mind that this was uh, a a cultural nugget that I hadn't quite understood.
2: Yeah. So Tiffin is a play on um, Tiffin with two Fs. Our company has one F, -F T-I-F-I-N. Tiffin is, think of it as like a, a bento box of Indian breakfast or snack items. So Tiffin started almost three and a half, four years ago as a venture studio where the organization incubated uh, several ideas, tested them quickly, and invested in the ones that found traction and grew them rapidly. So it's kind of this concept of a venture studio with a bunch of different things, all focused around still around that um, personalized uh, wealth management, if you will. And that's where it got its name. Interesting. So, I am.
0: Uh, well, of course, I know you because you and I have worked together years ago. Uh, you and I were worked together at uh, uh, AAA. Um, but I'm I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, and you've got a bit of an interesting journey to Tiffin. You were at uh, another company called uh, Amicus before that. I think you've spent some time at at, at Sony. Um, but with with Amicus. How did you get to Tiffin? And can you tell us that there, there's something interesting about Amicus I know I'd like our listeners to hear?
2: Yeah, excellent question, Sunny. About three years ago, I joined a startup called Amicus.io here, right here in Charlotte, um, that was founded with this idea that, that if we can engage donors at scale, um, then we can grow generosity. Um, if we can make it easy for people to find causes that they care about and match them to the donors, right? So we're essentially trying to democratize um, giving, if you will, uh, make it as easy as any online e-commerce type activity. Um, That was a product that Amicus was building, and I joined them on their journey to scale it, um, to get it enterprise-ready, because our go-to-market strategy was that we would partner with uh, some of the leading financial institutions um, and make it a white-labeled giving offering, just like a savings account or investment account. We would make it a charitable giving account. So that was the journey that uh, we took with Amicus. And when I came across Amicus, I kind of fell in love with that mission of, Um, doing good. And I also, like the founder, Core Hoekstra, ended up uh, joining him and the team um, on their journey. Um, As we were launching with the Tier 1 Financial Institution, uh, we ran into the founder of Tiffin, um, Dr. Vinay Nair, who happened to be sitting on the innovation board at that Tier 1 Financial Institution after selling his prior venture to them. As Tiffin was incubating different products, um, as Vinay was thinking about a giving product offering, he obviously heard about us as uh, at, at that institution, um, he essentially um, hired us for our APIs and launched Tiffin's own giving product with their own UX at the time in under eight weeks, very typical of a Tiffin playbook where they look at a friction point or a problem they want to solve and quickly put together an MVP-ready product and test it in market as fast as possible so that eight-week time frame is not that unusual for Tiffin. So as, as that product launched and found traction, about 10 months later, Amicus was absorbed by Tiffin. And that actually, that transaction happened a little over a year ago now. It happened in March 2022. And for me, I, I think watching um, that journey fast up close mm-hmm. as a supplier, if you will, to Tiffin and watching the innovation engine that they have, I got to experience that for the last year and a half as an employee. The vision, the amazing talent Tiffin has is, is what keeps me engaged and excited about the future.
0: So there's a lot to unpack in in what you just said there. One of the things that uh, I love that you said was you fell in love with um, their mission um, and the, the whole giving side of the world. But I, I have a feeling that you were in love with that uh, long before you joined Amicus and that maybe it aligned with, with how you see the world. You've been involved in uh, mentoring. You've been a mentor to me, so I really appreciate that you're involved in uh, giving back in the tech community here in the Carolinas and and a part of SIM and membership there. And you kind of have a special story as to, to what brought that on. Do you mind sharing that with us
2: today? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, you're kind being kind to me by saying I'm kind of a mentor to you, Sonny. I think it goes both ways. Actually, I learned a lot from you as well. Uh, for me, I think uh, mine is a very unlikely success story, if you will. Um, I I grew up in a small village in India in a family that did nothing but farming for generations. My generation was kind of the first one to venture beyond the farm and try something different. Uh, In my case, luckily for me, my parents decided early on that I was not fit for or built for the hard labor on the farm. So they sent me to school, the best education that's available in the area. As I went to school, that actually took me on a journey away from school for the most part because the village where I grew up, there was only elementary school. So middle school onwards, I was, by uh, circumstance, had to learn to live away from home and adapt, right? And kind of rely on others to support me in many ways, whether it's, what do I do next, or to, in terms of even understanding um, what the choices are, right? So as I reflect on that period of my life, I was really, was relying on the generosity of many people along the way. In some cases, could be students, distant relatives, cousins, could be um, strangers, right? You know, the saying that says it takes a village, it couldn't be truer in my case. It's really unfathomable that when I was growing up in, in that part of the world, where the answers to basic questions that you would take a kid growing up now, even in even in India now or here, were not there, right? So I think for somebody to get that kind of guidance and mentoring, made an impression on me. And I think um, as I grew older, to your point earlier, I wanted to do a little bit of that giving back, right? And I think that kind of drives some of what I do now, both at work and even outside of work. Um, And That's my way of kind of paying it forward, if you will. And anyway, going back to my school, right? So I was good at math somehow, I don't know how. (laughs) <laughs> and then I actually got to a point where I used to actually teach my own classmates because I, I knew how to solve some problems that they were struggling with. So, And over time, people saw that and saw that as a strength and somehow got exposed to coding um, through my college. And I loved it. And, and those days, if you get your hands on and a PC, that was like winning a lottery. Right? Because access to tech again was, was very rare. Um, so, and again, I find myself that I'm incredibly lucky that I was able to get those opportunities along the way. And, and that love eventually led me to a career in technology. As I finished my education, I ended up joining a tech firm in India. I worked for them for a few years before migrating to U.S.
0: It's an amazing story, and it's really inspiring. So uh, I think about that often, uh, Raja. So you do have an interesting role at at Tiffin. You came in as a CTO, and you're now the the chief product officer. Um, So that kind of gives you a unique perspective on technology, data, and products crossing from the technology side uh, into the business side. Can you tell us what that... uh, Kind of what your role, how you perceive um, managing IT, managing products. And of course, one of the things we're here to talk about is FinOps and managing cost controls and optimizing cost.
2: Yeah, so I think my start in technology actually was initially in uh, what used to be called business process reengineering. Now I'm dating myself, right? This was a time when <laughs> um, people were essentially reimagining offline analog business operations to a world of uh, computers and technology. So because of that grounding, I was kind of at the intersection of that understanding the customer problem, business problem, and applying technology to solve for it. So I think that continued for me throughout my career, where you always start with the problem you're trying to solve before you get into the weeds of the solution or technology. And even when I moved from that to later into data warehousing, business intelligence, software development, that kind of stuck with me that you are needed to understand the problem you're solving before you apply solutions, right? And throughout my career, I was at my best when I had direct line of sight to customers and customers and was using technology as a means to drive value to the customers, right? Uh, what I found is that the best technology leaders tend to be good business leaders first. They obviously have a deep understanding of the technology domain, right? They have to have that subject matter expertise, but they have to think and act like business leaders first and foremost, so that they can shape the trajectory of the business growth with that expertise, right? They're, what I've seen is some tech leaders that tend to hug their servers or the wax poetic about ERP (laughs) upgrades or get into endless debates about using this framework versus that framework, those typically um, don't succeed, at least don't succeed in the long run. I think the ones that ground themselves in solving the problems on behalf of the customer are the ones that make an impact um, and drive change.
0: Yeah and this is where we see you know the focus on driving business value over tech you know there and you hear a lot of people talk about people process and technology and and I also think you you've touched on all of those right the people yeah. business process reengineering and then the last thing we talk about is the technology piece of it yeah.
2: So one thing I would add Sunny there is often when you're in this is true for me right so as I took on the product leader role Um, at Tiffin recently, when you're in technology or any delivery role for that matter, you have a tendency to be very pragmatic and you focus on what can be done now. Whereas in a product role, you are the ultimate champion for the customer you're serving. And your focus has to become what needs to be done for that customer. For me personally, that has been the biggest shift.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I, that is an interesting perspective. And in, and in my role, I I uh, support the, the customer. I provide some thought leadership to the industry, and then I, I, I help our product team understand what should be in the product. So I get a little slice of each of those, yeah. uh, which is also very fulfilling for me. You know, I, I'm thinking back to um, the early promise of the cloud and the continued promise of cloud is, hey, we, uh, we're we going to save you money instead of endlessly maintaining servers, repurposing servicers, building out stacks, uh, going through uh, requests, you know, annual budgeting and requesting. We're going to make those on demand for you and we're going to make them cheaper. Yeah. And we're also going to make them uh, consumption based. But there's some interesting stats here. Uh, I'll read these to you. Uh, according to KPMG, 66% of business leaders say the cloud has not lowered their total cost of ownership. Yeah, And then a second stat is 64% of those business lo- leaders have said they have blown their budgets, according to IDC. So a couple of questions here, but the first one is, how did we get here?
2: Yeah, excellent question. Remember those days when um, AWS was going to solve all the world's problems, IT's problems, right? It's really, if you reflect a little bit on the on-premise world, right, where infrastructure was all hosted in-house by an in-house infrastructure team, right? It was, in some cases, the most precious resource, right? Infrastructure is a finite <laughs> resource, and it was guarded with this zeal, by those teams that, and the dev teams would get their wrist slapped for consuming too much of it, are worse Are put through a maze of approval processes before they get their hands on new capacity, right? Because it was kind of managed that way over the years. With cloud, you contrast that, anyone can spin up something they need in a matter of minutes, right? All you need is a credit card. While that provides enormous speed, and that's the biggest selling point really, right? So you get that speed. The side effect is, to your point, runaway costs. Could be runaway costs, not always. Particularly, this becomes pronounced where you have questionable engineering hygiene in your team to begin (laughs) with, right? The convenience of provisioning services on demand is not meant to take away the need for designing and building products that scale effectively, right? So it's not, it's never a substitute. It is, you're optimized for speed, but you still have to do the basic work of understanding your usage patterns and whether what you're building and designing is going to meet those needs or not. I think that's where the biggest surprises tend to come from because, teams typically jump into this without thinking those through uh, appropriately.
0: You know, in the on-premises world, we also had this term of shadow IT, right, yep. where there would be a, a division would create their own IT department, essentially kind of off the books to do work. But with cloud, it's changed into consumption creep. What, what you know? But to me, they're the same thing. We've just taken that. Yep shadow IT, and we've moved it to the cloud, right? And now your consumption is going up and up and up.
2: Yeah. Once the meter starts running, it keeps running, right?
0: That's right. And you mentioned governance. We had had on-premise governance uh, for whether we were going to acquire a new resource, get access to a new resource. But I don't think the oversight for the cloud, especially given the pandemic, right? So the pandemic caused us all to speed up. We have to get to the cloud sooner to enable remote work, remote access, remote selling of our products. Yep. All of those things accelerated us to the point now where we were. no one was thinking about the cost. They were thinking about, let's make it available and stay in business. Yep. And now we're coming back to the cost, yep. right? And I don't know about you, the complexity of bills um, blows my mind. Yep especially across multiple cloud providers. are you? Is your organization, tell us a little bit about the your organization. Are you on-premise? Are you in the cloud? Are you multi-cloud? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so we are 100% cloud. We are using two cloud providers for different services, um, but there is nothing on-premise for us. Everything is built for the public cloud.
0: And so we've got this things, in, and we're starting to talk about this, FinOps, FinOps, or... We've got yep. data ops. We've got DevOps. We've got ML ops. Soon to be followed by uh, GPT ops or LLM ops. Yep. But how, how do you see? How do you see FinOps? And maybe how do you maybe define it or or, or talk about how you view FinOps? Yeah,
2: excellent question. FinOps to me is really the practice of understanding where your spend is and how do you optimize that spend? How do you get the most value for that every dollar, incremental dollar you're spending, right? In this context, we are obviously talking about cloud costs, right? like if you're a startup, you're just getting off the ground, right? Where the outcome is binary, rightfully so, your 100% oh, of your right. focus is going to be on finding that product market fit in the first set of customers, right? The speed of learning determines the probability of success, whether you're going to be in business three months from now, six months from now is largely dependent on whether you're going to be successful with finding that fit. In that case, you're not thinking too much about cost optimization. You're thinking about survival, right? In that case, Phenopsis doesn't exist. But once you found that product market fit, you have paying customers, you're now in a position to scale that success The focus then shifts to how do you grow this in a sustainable way, right? And that's where you're looking at automation, efficiency gains across the board, your operations, product, scalability. And I think this is where typically companies get surprised or that that the rate of growth in their cost tends to be higher than their revenue growth because of the inherent inefficiencies they didn't get to address when they were trying to find that product market fit. This could be as simple as architectural issues in the product, or it could be just business model inefficiencies, right? If you look at on the tech side, generally outside of people cars, hosting cars are the single largest line item. That's where you have the most fat, if you will, to prune. I think that's where I think FinOps, wow. the right FinOps, can add a lot of value in a short amount of time. Yeah.
0: And so you've got, I think some things you've talked about, you know, we've got processes that may be immature for the cloud. You touched on the, the topic of, you know, if you're digital native or you're an enterprise, you, you've been in these enterprise solutions, that the actual accounting treatment is very different yes. for each one of those, yep. those things. We've, we've got consumption creep, uh, creep uh, we've got complex billing. So how do you handle that? How do you handle those sorts of challenges? Because it can be rather, rather daunting.
2: Yes, it can be. It can get complex really quick, for sure. When you're using cloud services, right, the worst thing anyone can do is pay for fixed capacity with on-demand pricing, right? That's the old, somebody spins up a VM or EC2, a bunch of EC2, EC2 instances, whether they're being used or not, and you're paying them on demand. That's the worst of both worlds, right? Cloud is supposed to be give you this flexibility, consumption-based pricing, but when you're spinning up that bare metal infrastructure, you're paying for some amount of fixed capacity, whether you use it or not. So first and foremost, I think people need to avoid provisioning infrastructure at that level and instead use platform-level services that can you can scale up and down based on usage without having to require an army of DevOps engineers. Right? You can build in some automation. That's the basic starting point for anybody. Number two, I think um, this gets to the engineering team hygiene. You can set some caps on what engineers can play with, what they can provision or consume without any oversight or approval. And then from there, you can lay it in a lightweight um, governance process, especially when it gets to a, beyond a certain percentage or a dollar amount you want to set. Certainly for production workloads, you want to apply that. I think those are basic blocking and tackling. Beyond that, I think then you look into doing your own capacity planning, if you will. This is to your point where suddenly it gets complex. Depending on the cloud provider, um, you can buy some reserve capacity of certain period, one year, two year, three year, you can pay upfront or not. But it's really not for the faint of heart because you have to do your homework so that you're not locking yourself into something that you won't use. Um, some services are uh, easier to manage from a long-term com- capacity planning standpoint. Some are not. So if you don't have that expertise, I would recommend you don't take that step. If you have that expertise and you have a team, strong FinOps team that can help you do that, I think that's a worthwhile exercise to do. You typically find... 30 to 40% savings by doing that, if not more. If you don't have that, then you can actually tap into this third-party ecosystem based on the cloud provider. This varies, but um, AWS is probably has the strongest third-party services network where you can actually hire them so that you can tap into the wholesale pricing they get from AWS. Number one, on top of that, they take ownership of the financial commitments on your behalf because they are managing these long-term capacity reservations across their hundreds of thousands of their clients. So even if they place a reservation in your account for three years for a specific service, and if they see that a month in, you're not using that anymore, they would, assign that to another client in their portfolio. So you're not on the hook for that commitment, but you still get that wholesale pricing. They do take a cut of that for themselves for doing right. that service on a dynamic basis. So I would recommend that service for anybody that has a meaningful workload anywhere. And Tiffin actually does this, by the way. And if your spend is so high that, and you have the maturity to do this, then I would recommend go negotiate an enterprise contract like you would with any other big software provider. But then again, that depends on where you are in your journey and how mature your team is.
0: That's interesting. And I would imagine that these same third-party services are uh, across multi-cloud, right? If you you were in Google Cloud and AWS, and God forbid, a third one, but I can only imagine two in my small mind.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, you know, there is this old saying that um, there are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. I would say for uh, for those of us in the tech industry, there is a third one, multi-cloud. I think it's inevitable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that, that may be another show, but I do know that we do have to manage the cost uh, and and try to optimize our cost yeah. uh, around multi-cloud. Yeah. One of the things that I see, cause I talk to companies uh, in the industry uh, a good bit. And of course, a lot of folks are dealing with this, but the thing I see often is folks jump straight to optimization. Do you have some thoughts around how to begin? If you, you know, if I, let's just take the case of, which this actually happened to me by the way, you know, I get a call from the CFO it says, sunny. it's on a Saturday morning, Sunny. what the hell is going on? You know, we just blew our budget by tens of thousands of dollars uh, this week or this month. How do you get started in that space?
2: Best practice is always to set up some alerting, right? On any variance in, from your spend, right? Any deviation from the normal workload. I think that goes a long way. I, I know what you mean, right? a simple runaway process could blow your budget for the month or for the quarter for that matter, right? So I think it's very important to understand and pay close attention to how that usage trends are happening um, and have a mechanism to be able to alert you as an early warning system when things are going off track. We At Tiffin, we have now this discipline where I get an alert on a weekly basis that kind of summarizes. So does the leadership team, actually, at the tech level. Basically, that says these services are trending this way, these services are trending this way, and these have breached this threshold from a variance standpoint. I think that goes a long way in terms of actionability to be able to understand, is this expected business growth or is this something happening that we should address? So I think that's very important because the meter is not not going to stop running, right? So you have to you have to understand <laughs> right. what you're using. And and it only takes a quick
0: search of Twitter or, or the internet to find some runaway cost. Actually, yeah. I saw on Twitter the other day someone posted two hundred thousand dollar runaway query in three hours.
2: Yeah,
0: incredible. So great advice to you know put some guardrails around there, put some alerting in there. Uh, I I think there's some onus that goes on to the cloud providers to give us greater visibility into this space and ease of use. I think they've caught it. They've begun to catch up, but early on it was a black box and, you know, very little alerting buyer beware. Yeah. You know, if you do something not so smart, you could end up with a big bill. And Oh, by the way, we're not going to give you a discount. You used it. You're going to own it. Yeah. So one of the thing uh, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about FinOps. It's the, um, It's top of mind for just about every CDO, every CIO, uh, out there. And, you know, it's happening whether you're running your business in the cloud, whether you're, you know, whether you're on premise and you've got this hybrid mode. So it's happening all throughout, uh, the industry from CIOs, CDOs, CTOs, CFOs that are all trying to understand this, um, and yet continue to have, uh, an impact on their business, a positive impact. So what are you thinking about when you're balancing speed to market, revenue generation, uh, and uh, cloud cost or or FinApps? What are you thinking about as you manage those?
2: Yeah, so at Tiffin, we have one process value and only one, and that is impact through innovation at speed. What we mean by that is that we have to deliver something of high impact to users every week and learn from it. So our unit of work is one week, right? So every week we, have, we measure our success on what have we created for our users in terms of impact and what have we learned from it and iterate essentially. Because we, we think that the speed of learning is the ultimate risk mitigator from a business standpoint. So we are ruthless in eliminating or minimizing anything that stands in the way of that learning and that speed. And in fact, we don't actually spend a lot of time on strategy or planning. Um, And we think about the business one quarter at a time. That gives us focus on what's in front of us immediate that we need to execute well on. And we just go and execute and learn, right? And we can't do that without empowering everybody on the team to make the best decisions they could with the limited contacts they get in that fast-moving world and give people the safety net of failing, but learning from that those failures, right? So we used the OKR framework. If you recall, suddenly we were using that, where we were there as well, but... There we were kind of using it, but not really, right? It was more of a reporting right. here. It is really to drive alignment and execution efficiency. And we don't have virtually any bureaucracy in terms of governance, those kinds of things. It's all about providing clarity through OKRs and execution and learning from that execution as fast as we can with minimal amount of resources possible. Same goes for cost optimization, right? What what is it we want to solve on a week? week week basis and just executing is that we are not thinking it is what we want to do six months from now, four months from now, a year from now. We are what is immediate in front of us. How do we make a difference?
0: So, Juan, you mentioned early on lightweight framework. So I, I, I kind of stuck in my head and, and here you are talking about it again, as quickly as possible, removing all of those barriers between you and execution. You know, in the data world, we talk about building data-driven organizations. We talk about data fluency, getting uh, business users to understand what data is out there and how to use it. How important is that then from a FinOps perspective and your developers? How important is it to get them to understand FinOps and what they do and the impact of their costs? And and are you doing that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, we are. Actually, the weekly... Alert that goes out. It goes out to engineering leads as well, so there is that transparency up and down the chain, to so that people know what what we are spending, and where we have the biggest opportunities to cut costs or the constraints. On the flip side, typically that those data points on the cost side serve as a uh, early warning system to identify architectural constraints that the team needs to tackle and we use that for both purposes.
0: Okay, very neat. If you just had one thought or one message you could share to organizations, what would that message be? What would that message be to those organizations around FinOps and cost optimizations?
2: Use the data to identify not only where you can cut the cost that you can deploy somewhere else, but also use that to drive your product roadmap in terms of identifying where the next set of growth will come from from a product scalability standpoint as you do that take help from some of the third-party services that i mentioned earlier you don't have to solve this yourself you can tap into the expertise because this is not a core competency that you would want to have to build yourself right so rely on third parties that do this for a living yes they take some portion of the savings they they bring you but that's what the price for the value they bring to the table.
0: So I love that. And, you know, it touches on another metric I, I was looking at here, and you're actually just talking about going out and buying the maturity for FinOps, you know, or leasing it, if you will. Yes. What I've seen, and, and, and I think this came from 451 Research, basically uh, some stats here, mature FinOps organizations Uh, 78% of them are saying that FinOps is helping them grow revenue. The other 21%, plus or minus, are saying it helps them sustain that revenue. But if you look at organizations that are under three years, that growth is at 55%. That's growing revenue. 55% are only growing revenue. The other 44% are saving revenue. So I think to your point, there's the opportunity to not only use FinOps to help with profitability, uh, scale your business, but actually grow revenue. um, Using that data that comes out of there to figure out what needs to be in your products to actually yield more revenue coming in. All right, let's move on to the lightning round. It's just a series of quick questions and what comes to mind? And it's not necessarily data-related, it's what's happening in the world. So when you are not working with, with the data, or, or in FinOps, what are you doing?
2: So contrary to popular belief, I lead a very boring life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I usually, usually find me reading a book or relaxing on the beach with uh, my family. Those are my two um, activities that I love to do.
0: So of your books, which mentors or books or thought leaders have inspired you the most in your career?
2: Yeah, there's several, actually. Um, Books-wise, I think some of the ones that had the most impact on me, I think, were there is this book called Grit. There is Grit? Yeah. Yes. There is another one called The Mindset. Those two probably had the most impact on me. Um, And in fact, actually, Grit, I read with my 13-year-old together. Um, It was a lot of fun. Talks about kind of resilience and hard work, right? we often talk about talent being the most important thing, but it's really not. It's really that resilience and hard work that gets you to where you need to be.
0: How will LLMs and GPT change wealth management or fintech?
2: Yeah, so actually at Tiffin, we have been using the technology for a while now. The recent popularity of ChatGPT certainly brought more attention to what we are doing. Uh, But I, I personally believe that wealth, management as an industry will be changed in the much the same way the personalization has changed entertainment right the way we consume content whether it's netflix or other type services and uh, essentially tailoring investment advice and solutions based on people's wants desires personality risk appetite etc
0: that's really interesting so In a word, what word would you use, single word would you use to describe chat GPT? Viral. Viral. Yeah, that's good. That's actually quite good. So with with this, do you worry at all about ethics, trust with LLMs and GPT?
2: Absolutely. It is the privilege of our lifetime to be able to solve problems, these problems at scale for those of us working on these problems. So that comes with a set of responsibilities, right, that we have to use it wisely. Like with any technology, proper transparency disclosure um, go a long way in terms of what it can do, cannot do, but more importantly, how we are applying that and what are the inputs that go into it. I think that disclosure goes a long way in building that trust with the end users.
0: You know, I think about this, not only that, but with the use of llms and 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 that sort of thing i think we're getting to a period where we're redefining the trust relationship between business users technology users because we've already had trust challenges with our business users and now to say ah we want you to trust us and we use these llms yeah. right and the same thing yeah. going the other way so i think it's going to redefine how humans Uh, interact with machines, and what does that mean to trust across all of those interactions? One other, can you name a moment in your career when you realized it was a time for a change and and what you did with it?
2: Yeah, I I think this was, uh, around the time I joined Amicus, actually, Sunny, this was a time where I realized that working in a corporate environment was not for me anymore, Uh, That the pace of change or the magnitude of change from a customer impact standpoint, um, you're almost by design set up not to succeed in some cases. So I wanted to actually change that and go to an organization where you're free from all that bureaucracy so you can actually Solve a problem, solve a problem holistically end-to-end and, and do it um, at speed. Uh, I think to me, that was one change. The second was the type of problems that you want to solve, right? That could actually have a meaningful impact, some kind of positive impact on the end user. I think those two are probably the ones that I would call out as my kind of two biggest drivers to to want to go work for a small startup.
0: Well, you are definitely making a big impact. I hear great things about Tiffin, and I've seen some of the great things that you are doing, how fast you guys are moving and innovating. So it's just, uh, it's inspiring. So thank you, Raja. Yeah,
2: thank you. It was uh, good catching up with you and enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Hausen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content.
1: The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.